fourth through fourth grade. Charlotte's right there. We're in 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to be studying verses 17 through 24 this morning. Once again, 1 Corinthians 7, that's verse 17. Read along with me if you would. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Uh, So the sermon today, I I don't usually do PowerPoint stuff. So I'm just going to tell you off the bat. The three points that we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, the, the big idea is contentment, right? And we have this ridiculous alliteration going on. But really just contentment, how to be content, okay? And I think a lot of us, in an honest assessment of our own lives, are not content. We could always do more. We could always do bigger. We could do better, okay? There's, that, there's the idea of that the grass is greener on the other side, right? And we've got to get that grass somehow. So the three things that we're going to be talking about are, one, uh, to be content with our calling. The second thing is to be content with God's sovereignty. And thirdly, to be content with Christ. And I'll repeat these uh, as we go through. So if you noticed, a couple weeks ago, it was the Super Bowl, the big game. And one of the, I think, it was a great game, but one of the funnest things about the Super Bowl is the commercials. Uh, And I was rifling through my feeble filing cabinet of a mind of all the commercials that played. And the only one I remember was some lady who had just a series of really unfortunate events. Like she, she like was catapulted into a whale and she fell off an iceberg. Do you remember that commercial? I don't even remember what they were selling. I just remember she, she, would, she experienced a lot of pain, right? And the thing is, with the Super Bowl, the, that's when all the, the big commercials are supposed to come out. So I looked up, I, I searched on the interwebs. How much would it cost to advertise a 30-second bit during the Super Bowl? Any five and a half million dollars for 30 seconds. 30 seconds for five and a half million dollars. So if we, if we break that down, that's like $166,666 per second. That's a lot. That's... That's a lot of money, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, let's compare that with kind of the lay of the advertisement land, okay? So 30-second ad during the World Series Game 7. 
30-second ad during Game 7 of the World Series, $500,000, right? Yeah, so 30-second ad during the 2016 Oscars, $2 million, right? So Super Bowl is the, the place to have advertising. And the thing about all these commercials is we, we really live in a culture where people will pay that much to tell you there's something that you need, right? You watch these things, you're like, yeah, I guess you're right. The best, the best part of waking up is Folgers in my cup, right? Like, or you see these medicines come out, you're like, I, I feel weird now. I might need whatever, you know, Lipitor, whatever it is, right? But the thing is, we are constantly bombarded, and it's not just during the Super Bowl. You just drive down the highway, advertisement. Open up a magazine, advertisement. Watch some YouTube videos, advertisement. I don't even want to see these things, right? But we are constantly told by the culture that in order to be happier, to be more fulfilled, we need more stuff, right? We need that food, or we need less wrinkles, we need to be on this diet, right? Or, or even we need our team to win, we need this promotion, we just need a certain status in life, right? Or for the single people, uh, you need that boy or that girl to notice you, otherwise you will not live a fulfilled or happy life, right? And it's, this, it's the, uh, the idea of, if only blank, then my life would be complete, right? And I don't know about you guys, but I have a lot of those answers. If only blank, my life would be complete. How would you, I'm not, you don't have to answer out loud, but how would you fill in that blank? If only this happened, this promotion, this person noticed me, my life would be complete. In preparing for the sermon, it was um, jarring, the reason why is because uh, if I could illustrate like my status quo Christian growth, right? If my faith were like a tree, right? Coming to church and fellowship and like that, that tree is like just being slowly shaped into something, right? But this one, this one, someone, someone took a tractor and just like knocked it down, right? It, it was one of those things because in preparing for this, uh, there's just a real honest assessment of where my true values lie. Am I content with what God has given me? You see. So, um, if, we, if we notice in the chapters before, the Corinthians had a similar problem. We're not that different from the Corinthians. Right? So if you've been with us for the first six or seven chapters of this, we know that their status was in what the world told them it should be. Right? They had this, these worldly goals, and they even tried to introduce that, inject that idea into the church. They tried to find fulfillment in worldly wisdom, in worldly status, in, in being tied to a particular teacher. I am of this guy. I am of that guy. Right? And the truth is we're not that different. Okay? The core issue with being content is worldliness. Right? Worldliness, which is directly attached to the sinfulness in our own hearts. Being discontent is on the surface about circumstances, right? I want to change this one little circumstance in life. Or if only this thing didn't happen to me, or only if this thing would happen to me, then I would be okay. But really, it's a heart issue. A heart issue. That's why there is a commandment to not covet. It's a heart issue. Okay? So let's, for a brief moment, I just want to talk about contentment, and then we're going to jump into the text. So what, what is contentment? How do you know if you've achieved that, right? The Holman Bible Dictionary 
defines contentment as such. Internal satisfaction, which does not demand changes in external circumstances. Uh, one more time. According to the Bible dictionary, contentment is internal satisfaction, which does not demand changes in external circumstances. And I want to point to actually a biblical example. In Philippians 4, this is a very familiar passage because we've seen this Bible verse everywhere. Bumper stickers, sweaters, grandma's pillow, magnets, right? And I'm going to give a little context because context is key. Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to start from verse 11. This is Paul writing, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's talking about being content. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is talking about contentment. He's not talking about the ability to make your dreams come true as this Bible verse is so often used in being content. So what can we learn about contentment in these three verses? One, it is learned, right? It says here, he has learned to be content. That tells us that our natural state is not to be content. Our natural state is to be discontent. You see? It doesn't come naturally to us. And he repeats this when he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. It's just like this mystery that's out there in the ether that, we, that he has to intentionally learn. That's in verse 12, the secret, right? Furthermore, the Bible tells us that we are to learn to be content. It is not something only for holy people, right? Or something for armchair theologians or only for pastors or only for those Christians who really take Christianity seriously, right? For all Christians, we are supposed to learn to be content. How do we know that? Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice that the writer of Hebrews says to be content, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Not be content because later on God will see how much faith you have in him and therefore bless you with a lot of material things. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say be content because God sees how much you want that boy or girl to notice you. So therefore he will give your hand in marriage. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, be content because God will give you that dream job. He doesn't say that. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He points to Christ. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So we as Christians are responsible to learn to be content. Okay. Also recall in Philippians, where was Paul when he wrote this? He was in prison. <laughs> He's writing about contentment in prison, right? What about the landscape of his circumstances? That's just mind-blowing to me. I would not be content in prison. I would be trying to break out, right? That's the truth, right? <clears throat> but also, I, I want to avoid swinging the pendulum too far to the extremes. So contentment doesn't mean like, oh, I got to be content. I'm going to, after service, I'm going to go and sell all my possessions. That's not what we're talking about, right? Um, the last thing I want to say about contentment is this. That contentment, and I'm going to reiterate this, is that it's a heart issue. 
it's not something, uh, it's not something that's a result of proper planning. It's not just, oh, I guess I'm in jail, but the Bible says be content, so I'm going to will myself to be content. Momentarily, sure. You can even pretend that you have a higher tolerance for when life doesn't go your way. But that's not contentment. Contentment is a heart issue, right? Where you are okay simply with the fact, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're okay with that and nothing else, that's contentment. And the honest truth is, and this is the part that knocked my tree down, right? That's not the truth of my life. I'm not always content with, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Am I the only one? Right? Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to jump into our text today. Uh, first, a little context, because again, context is key. Uh, if we notice at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul is responding to them, right? Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, okay? And then he goes on to explain himself. But I just want to look at this, the beginning part of this, kind of generally. And what I mean by that is, by and large, what Paul says to them is, remain as you are, right? Single folks, remain as you are. You don't, you don't have to seek a status change, right? Married folks, remain as you are, by and large. And he gives some exceptions, which is okay, right? So what we are not talking about today is I am totally content with the status quo so as to never, I'm never going to try to better myself. And that's not what we're talking about. Okay? And we'll get into that more and more later. But I just want to make that clear that what we're not talking about is a legalistic, super rigid view of that's how it is. That's not what we're talking about. Okay? All right. So in our text, we're in verse 17. <clears throat> what I want to point to first is the, is the first word. Only. The reason why this is important is because it connects this chunk, verses 17 and 24, to the previous chunk. So, if what Paul is saying is, by and large, remain where you are. Don't be worried about the status. Only, here he says, only, or whatever the case may be. Right? Here is the main principle. So only, here's the principle. Here's the principle of it all, Paul says. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Okay? So what we have to ask, obviously, is what is this call? What has God called us to? Or is it different for every believer? It's easy to look at this and say, the calling is vocational. He's called me to such and such a job. But in Paul's use of the word, he, he almost never uses it that way, if ever. What he is talking about is to which God has called him is talking about our call to salvation. Okay. This call is not of vocation, but of our call of God's good grace and salvation. Right? And we can see that because if we're going to take this idea of calling, if this is, if this is like a rope, and I'm going to climb this rope all the way to the beginning of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, in verse, let's say, 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26 of chapter 1, for consider your calling brothers. We're not talking about vocation. We're talking about the call salvation. Same idea repeated in Romans chapter 8. The very popular verses, right? <clears throat> The idea that he's talking about is this call to salvation dictates, frames, 
informs all other facets of your life. How you are to act in community. What you are like in marriage. What kind of worker you are at your job, your vocation. What sexuality is. What your life goals are supposed to be. All of these are dictated by the call of salvation. This is the biggest, most important identity-giving call for every Christian. Okay? That every other thing in life pales in comparison to the call of salvation because none of those things change your standing or your worth before God. You see? The calling of God to salvation is what defines us, not, not what the world says, not worldly status. And the, in this text, is great. He uses two very safe examples of calling, right? Circumcision, or ethnic groups, and then slavery, <laughs> right? These are the examples he has for us in this passage, right? But what we want to notice is this call to salvation redefines those terms. It redefines ethnic groups, in a sense. We'll get to that in a second. It redefines relationships between slave and master or slave status, okay? So, fortunately for us, Paul has given us the polarizing divisive issues of circumcision and slavery. So we're in verse 18 now. Was anyone at the time of his call ready, uh, already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Do you see this kind of principle of, hey, you don't need to change your status. If you're circumcised, fine. If you're uncircumcised, fine. Do you see that? Okay. Uh, let's consider a few cultural things uh, as we dive in. One is, the congregation was a mixed bag, so they were Jew and Gentile. Okay? But what was it that, what was it that separated them? What would the Jews point to? Right? The Jews would point to circumcision and say, look, the physical mark of the covenant relationship that I and my people have with God. This is a sign, a physical sign, a real sign of the blessings. Right? Look, I am a child of Abraham. I can prove it. Here it is. Right? That's the truth. And then we have this weird, um, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. So this word is is used here in the New Testament only as like a, a medical procedure, right? By which it's, uh, there's no way to beat around it. It's foreskin restoration, okay? So they would try to hide circumcision. And there are recorded instances, for example, of Jews who would seek this process out to hide their ethnicity in Greco-Roman gyms, right? Uh, I don't want to be recognized as a Jew at the gym. You see, so they wanted to change their status, and also consider who is writing this. Paul, a Jew of Jews. How can a Jew say circumcision is nothing? Right, especially because it's a sign of covenant blessing, a sign of being a son of Abraham. Furthermore, what does he say in verse 19? For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Here's the weird rub that's here. Why did they circumcise in the first place? It was a commandment from God. Genesis 17. Right? So there's something revealing about the staunch line of are you circumcised or uncircumcised? That's one of the divided things, in the, uh, one of the divisive things in the church back in the day. 
But it reveals to us that being called to salvation in Christ erases any designation that attaches worth based solely on ethnic background. It's not about being a Jew or a Gentile. It's not about the outward mark of being a son of Abraham. Right? In Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6, 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right? So what is it that counts? It's not a physical circumcision. The Bible says in Romans 2, Deuteronomy 10, Jeremiah 4, what God is after is circumcision of the heart. No man can do that. So you can circum be circumcised, you can even be circumcised and then uncircumcised or have the foreskin restoration. That doesn't count. What God looks for is circumcision of the heart. So the calling to salvation is not an outward physical mark. It is an inward change of the heart. It is a change of lordship from worldly values to what God values, right? It is a change of moral behavior. It's not a change in race or status. So what I want to point to is the line of distinction between Jew and Gentile is blurred and moved to something else. It's not, are you Jew or are you Gentile? It turns into, are you obedient or are you not obedient to God's command? Do you see that? And the reason why is because whether you are circumcised or not, Neither of those things prevents you from obeying God, you see. And that's the call of the gospel. The, go the call of the gospel is a command, a command to repent and believe, right? So neither being Jew nor Gentile will prevent anybody from obeying that command. And that's why, in this case, ethnic worldly status is not important because it does not prevent anyone to live their call of salvation. And it should be said, too, for those in the past and those present, that if you think that these worldly distinctions or these worldly statuses or the, these worldly classifications, if, those, if you think those carry any weight before God, then you are enslaved to that. And what you have is a works-based salvation, not one that is based on grace. Okay? So to be content with our call is to be content with our call to salvation. That's the first point. Secondly, content with God's sovereignty. This is tough, you guys. It's tough. <clears throat> so as Christians, right, we would all believe we would all say, right, God is sovereign over all things anytime. Right? And that the ult ultimate driving purpose of this sovereignty is his glory and as a byproduct our good. Right? And so we really really buy into this idea that God is sovereign and we and we rely on it and trust Him, um, what does that look like in daily life? Especially when you don't like your life circumstances. That's, that's the rub. So the harsh reality is this. If God wanted us to have more, we would. Right? So, right, if God is sovereign all the time, and we are supposed to have more, we would have more. If we were supposed to have bigger or better, we would. If we were supposed to fill in that blank, it would be filled in for us. If God, if God is sovereign, right? So to say that he is sovereign and say, I believe that, that is one thing, right? To be comfortable with leaving that blank blank until God so chooses in his goodness to fill it, that's the tension, right? Because 
If you, if you file through your list of things that you want to fill that blank with, not all of them are necessarily ungodly, right? So for example, um, if, only, if only I could play piano better, then my life would be complete because my service to the church would be elevated, right? That's not bad. But to rest in God's sovereignty. More importantly, though, is if we needed a different set of circumstances, or if we needed a different kind of gifting to serve God, we would have it. That's the ultimate question. What in all these things is preventing you from serving God? Circumcised, uncircumcised, or your circumstances? What in your life circumstances prevents you from serving God? The reality is nothing, because He has put you there on purpose, right? If you say, no, He hasn't, then we have to retract our statements about God being sovereign over all things, all the time. Because something has, some circumstance in your life has now surprised him. <laughs> right? That's the truth. Now we're, now we're open theists, which is crazy. Okay? But what we have to remember in terms of God's sovereignty is this. It is easy for us in our consumer mindset to think that his driving force of sovereignty, his purpose is to accomplish my comfort. Right? And my riches, and my kingdom here, where if we look through the, the pages of Holy Writ, that couldn't be further from the truth. As a byproduct, maybe, but God is primarily concerned with His glory, or His purpose, or His gospel reaching the corners of the earth. So the question is, where do you fit in, in God's picture? Not, how can God, how can God fit into your picture, you see? So what we, we need to realize that God has put us in a particular place with specific circumstances in our life in order to serve Him. So you have to ask, in this question of contentment, is that your primary mindset? That no matter where the circumstances, I'm content serving a God who has called me to salvation. Right? Or, or is your life consumed with the fantasies of the things your heart covets? You see? And what we have here in the text, verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Just hold on for a second. <laughs> so in Philippians, Paul was writing from, from prison, right? And he's saying, I have learned to be content. I, don't under, I can't understand it because I would, be trying to, I would try to break free with the truth. And now he says to a bondservant, the, the word is actually slave, right? So were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about the fact that you're a slave. If I were a slave, every day I would try to break free. That's the truth. I don't want to be enslaved to people. Right? That's, but how can he say, this is in scripture. He says, don't worry about it. Or forget about it. One of the driving principles behind this is, how could you say that, Paul? Well, because whether you're a slave or you're free, neither of those things prevents you from living out your calling serving where God has put you, right? Also, what we need to consider is this, uh, and I think it's probably one of the reasons why they use the word bondservant instead of slave, because in our minds, when I say slave, we have a very specific picture, right? Black people in cotton fields, 1800s, like that. It's a very racial thing in, in the United States, right? Culturally. And so when we read bondservant or slaves, we take that idea and we chuck it back to Paul's day, which is not the form of slavery that he is talking about. Okay? So we need to make sure we understand that there's a difference. 
right? What are, those, what are some of those differences? This is not going to be an exhaustive list, only so we can understand what's further along in the text. One is not, is not based on race. Two, how do you become a bond servant or a slave? Well, some people are born into it. I'm talking about first century, okay? Right. Some people are born into it, but a lot of people, if they had a debt, they sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Now think about that for a second. If I had a debt to Eric that I needed to pay off, I don't necessarily need to sell myself to him. I could choose, uh, I don't mean to say, I could choose someone better, <laughs> right? That guy, that guy would be a better master to me. Eric, Eric has a grass hut. That guy has a palace. I want to be a slave to him because at the end of the day, I could sleep in a palace, you see? So if I'm going to sell myself to slavery, I, I had, in a sense, those options. And again, uh, to avoid swinging the pendulum to the extreme, slavery is never a good thing. The Bible does not condone it, right? And even in this sense, uh, first century slavery, you were still treated as properly, and some people were treated awfully. There is no, like, yeah, I want to volunteer. It's, that's not what we're talking about. What I, I'm just making the case that it is not as we Americans think of it, okay? All right. Uh, so it's not lifelong captivity because most people could gain their freedom, right? There's two ways. One is uh, the person I sold myself to would just set me free for whatever reason because he chooses, because he's very kind, or he's like, too much trouble keeping this guy around. Go away, right? Uh, and that happened a lot. Many owners free their slaves. There are, also, there are even recordings of Augustus saying, hey, you can only free so many people a year, all right? That's too much, okay? The thing is, many people, uh, this title freedmen, many slaves who earned their freedom had the title of a free person, had the rights of a free person, but often they would retain a client-patron relationship with their previous master, right? So there's still a little allegiance that I owe to this guy, and oftentimes when that happens, this freedman who was once a slave would even take the name, the family name, of this patron. Interesting, right? Yeah, very, very different. Okay. Also, the duties of a slave ranged from, uh, you know, little piddly chores to managing households. Right? So it was not just harsh physical labor. Were those instances? Sure, but there was a, a wide range of things that a slave could do. Okay, so it's different. I also want to mention really quickly before we kind of move on in the text that there is some ambiguity and I want to be careful with this. In verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. And then in the parentheses we have, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. The ambiguity is there is a word missing there. So it says something like, but if you can gain your freedom, by all means, make use of. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Make use of. So we have to kind of fill in the blank. There is a, I want to say, not that majority of minority is right, because what's right in interpreting God's word is what God meant. But there is a minority group of people who think that it means to remain in the circumstances of slavery, right? To use that circumstance to glorify God, right? Whereas in the ESV, what I'm reading out of it says, make the op- avail yourself of the opportunity for freedom. That's majority of interpreters. And I think that's correct, but I just want to put, put it out there that there's a word missing, so there's some, so there's some head scratching about it. Okay? Uh, so the two, the two issues are, is it to remain in the condition which you were called or to use the opportunity 
to be free. All right, back to forget about the slavery status. Just because Paul says, hey, don't worry about it, that doesn't therefore mean that every Christian who was a slave was like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's not that easy, right? Because the slave still had to live with the status of being a slave. The question is, will the slave trust in God's providence despite his social status and live out his calling? Or will the slave be consumed with fantasies of freedom? You see? Does that make sense? So trust in God's sovereignty. The circumstances of life that you have right now is what he put you in. And it's, it's for your good, somehow. Even if your life right now is really ugly, it's for your good, and it's for you to serve him if you are to live out his, if you're going to live out the call to salvation. Here's a very real example um, in, in 1 Samuel. I think you'll catch on really quick. I'm going to do like a, kind of a very brief overview. Biblical example of David. 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as king. Do you guys remember that? Did he take the throne right away? He was anointed as king. And then what? So that's 1 Samuel 16, anointed as king. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel 18, Saul is jealous of David, right? And it says that he eyed him from that day on, right? And in, eight, excuse me, in 1811, Saul hurls a spear at David, okay? What does David do? Hey, I am the king. No, he waits. 1 Samuel 19, Saul tries to kill David again. And then 1 Samuel chapter 24, David passes on an opportunity to kill Saul. Saul went to relieve himself. David could have killed him. In, in fact, his men encouraged him to. And he said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Right? And then 1 Samuel 26, he passes on another opportunity. And what he points to is, I'll read this part. He says here, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head, Saul sleeping, at his head, and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. They were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon him. David was content to wait for God's timing. He was anointed king, but he waited because he had no higher ambition than to belong to God, to be at God's disposal, for God's timing, for things to happen at a time of God's choosing, right? at a place of God's choosing, with the provision that God has provided. He is content with God's sovereignty. Right? He is not consumed with, this kingship is rightfully mine. Saul, he doesn't say that. He is content with God's sovereignty. Okay? So content with calling, content with God's sovereignty. <clears throat> and then if you remember what we were talking about in terms of freed slaves retaining uh, client-patron relationships with the former owner, and they would adopt the family names and exercise allegiance, right? This is the idea of the freed man. So here's the interesting thing. If we go back to 1 Corinthians, oops, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 22. 
For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant or as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. The freed man, that's the word for the guy who earned his freedom but retains allegiance to the master. Right? Likewise, or in much the same way, he who was free, the status of free when called, is now a slave or bondservant of Christ. So the interesting thing is this. The status of slave and free man has been blurred in a sense because Paul has removed these persons and put them in the household of God. Right? Freedman of the Lord, bondservant of Christ. So now they both belong to Christ and it continues the idea of redefining worldly categories because if you're a Jew or Gentile, you can still serve God. If you're a slave or free, you can still serve God. Right? Whether you're a slave or free or Jew or Gentile, you still inherit the blessings and the status of being in Christ's household. We both share in the household obligations to obey God's command, to live out your call to salvation, to bear fruit, to exercise allegiance. Right? Being a slave to Christ takes priority over any and every other status or household. The difficulty in all this is nowadays we abhor the idea of being a slave or a servant or a bondservant. We just abhor the idea of servitude. Because in, in our day and age, what is one of the highest achievements you can have? It's total autonomy, right? Leave me alone. I, I want to be my own boss. I'm going to start my own business, right? But this idea of doing whatever you want is not biblical. This idea of doing whatever you want is not biblical because we belong to Christ. The question is not, what are you doing with your life? Is how, how are you being a good steward with what Christ has given you? Whether you are slave or free, Jew or Gentile, whether you are abounding in much or have little, right? we are not free unto ourselves. Okay? We are freed men in the Lord. Okay? Lastly, to be content with Christ. So we talked about content with calling, content with God's sovereignty, content with Christ. How do we learn to be content? How do we... How, how can, how can I trust in God's providence despite life's ugly circumstances? The way to be content, there's no magic to it. The way to be content is to be completely satisfied with God and what He provides, especially Christ. So let's run this backwards. If you are not content, then Christ in your heart is not sufficient for you. That's the trouble. Because as Christians, we want to say, yeah, He is sufficient. The way we live, often different. We can stand together and sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And then we live as if that next best thing in life is where my hope is found. See? But what greater need do we have than being saved? When we're talking about full autonomy or freedom, what we need freedom from is not other people or kingdoms of the world. What we need freedom from is sin. Who can do that? No man. A God-man. No man. What greater need do we have than to be saved? What greater problem than do we have than, than sin itself? Not life circumstances. Not physical ailments. Sin. Your own heart. What, what, what is it that has truly enslaved you and held you in bondage? Your heart that drips with evil. And the only person who can change that is Jesus. Right? Who can free us? What can free us from this 
this evil, this bondage to sin. Good grades? No. Good job? No. Big house? Lots of money? Cool toys? Video games? Relationship status? Abundance of friends? None of those things. Zero. Right? Only Christ. So the question is, if you were stripped away of everything except for salvation, is that okay? Are you content with it? Guys, that's not easy to say, because I could tell you, honestly, my answer is no. (laughs) I I mean, we could start with, like, unholy little things, right? Like, my dog. I like my dog. Please don't take him away. But the fact is, we can have all the riches in the world, and our hearts not be changed. That's, that's a real problem. Right? You can have all that and more, and your heart would still be dripping, dripping with vile sinfulness. So if you are looking for, and can only be satisfied with Christ and, that's not biblical. Right? And, furthermore, you are going to be very disappointed in the new heavens and earth. Because when that time comes, can you imagine... The throngs and multitudes of people saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Right? And you're at the craft table being like, I, have a, I was a CEO of a business, really successful. That's not going to matter anymore. Right? So the point is this. If, if you are not fully content in Christ and you constantly, constantly crave and fantasize about worldly status and things, heaven is going to be a very big disappointment for you. Because when we're face-to-face with God, what else do we need? That's it. Heaven is not going to be about collecting stuff or statuses. It's not going to matter, right? Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan, he he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I'm going to read a little quote from, from this. He says... I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. So to be content with our calling, does our calling to salvation dictate all other areas of life? Content with God's sovereignty. Do I live the reality that God has given me my particular life situation in order to serve Him? And then to be content with Christ. Is contentment rooted in Christ's sufficient work alone, or is it Christ and? And it is only in Christ alone that we are saved from our bondage of sin. Uh, I had another quote, but I'm not going to read it. Well, I will say, though, there's this, there's this old, old-time old song, but it's a great song, and it's one of my favorite songs. <clears throat> and, and in preparing for the sermon, it just dawned on me, like, that's what the song is really talking about. <laughs> it's, it's one of those moments, right? Because oftentimes, when we sung the song, like, you know, 50, 100 years, it just rolls out of the tongue, real easy, like, right? But in light of Christian contentment, I just want to read this to you. Okay? You understand. 
when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say what? It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What is it What is it that mitigates all this stuff? That Christ, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Even though Satan should buffet or trials should come, we are still saved. For the end of all days, what Christ has given me is sufficient. And then verse 3. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Right? That is a song of contentment. Hey, let's sing that together, could we? Right. If the band will come forward, we're going to sing that.